check check this part this part right here you know this part this is like the best part this is the part of the show where we're all wondering what direction it's going to go all of us including me where where's it going i don't even know but this this is probably the best part it's the best part this part right here right here you're feeling this this that yeah yeah this is the best part It's true. It's true, right? The best part. Even besides this podcast, this is the best part of your life. You'll never be this old again. You'll never be this young again. This moment, embrace it. Ooh, deep thoughts already? Life lessons already? Shouldn't we save that for the end? No, right now. It's the best part of your whole life. I don't care what mood you're in. Try to step away from any mood and just say, yeah. I get to be here right now. I get to have this breath in and out. I'll be 42 years old tomorrow. Today is the last day of my 41st year as a human on planet Earth, which would have been elderly in the 1600s if I was one of those early settlers, early colonists coming over in a boat across the Atlantic and I got to the shore I stepped off the boat, first of all, stepped over a bunch of dead bodies to get off the boat, and then I got on the sand, and then I took a few steps into the brush, into the wilderness, and looked around and said, oh shit, we don't have anything. Is this kind of a DIY community? Are we doing a little DIY around here? No, motherfucker, this ain't no DIY This is just do what you gotta do to survive. There is no grocery store. Hasn't been invented. There's no Home Depot to get that lumber to build a house. So do your best to survive each and every day. You're gonna get real sick. You're gonna be real hungry. The weather is gonna be a real issue. All of these surrounding indigenous tribes, that's gonna be a real topic of discussion. Amongst your people as you just set up shop. But good luck. Good luck. Yeah, settlers weren't making it to 42. No. You were dead in your 30s. Even if you were doing pretty well, you were dead in your 30s. If you came over in the 1600s to some of those old colonies. Dreary, drab, depressing. Y'all ready for the American dream? Whatever that means. The American dream has evolved quite a bit. The American dream back then was like, could I make it to my 40th birthday with all my limbs and all my teeth? Probably not. And now what's the American dream? Can I make a lot of money? Can I make enough money? Can I be happy? Can my family be happy and healthy? I don't know. I think a lot of people would have a different answer. What's the American dream? Can I be grateful for my rights and utilize my freedoms to the best of my abilities to truly have this optimal experience? And the united, somewhat divided, but also united, very divided, states of America. I don't think they should teach history to you until you're in your 30s anyways. I mean, really, what percentage of teens, I'll play devil's advocate on my whole career for a moment. What percentage of teens is like really into history? It's small. Most of us develop it later in life where we're like, oh, I can't wait to read that book about Dunkirk. 
You know, when you're in your 40s and 50s, you start to go, wow, the ancient Romans really knew it. When you're in your teens, that's just a vehicle to get to college, fill your transcript with the best grade you can get. I'd say 25% of the kids are into history, and a lot of them can still enjoy the experience. Like if it's a good teacher, if you got some friends in the class, you're still building literacy skills, maybe some hot button issues to discuss. Maybe you discuss social issues and current events. So a history class still has a lot of value. But how many of these kids are like really into it when you start introducing Jamestown and Roanoke and Plymouth? I mean, you got to go back. When you start a history class early in the year, you got to go deep. And it feels ancient, and I don't know how many of them are connecting with it, but they're doing well. The kids are good right now. Let me just drop a blanket statement on all kids. The kids in the high schools are doing well. Enough with the stressful headlines that make you worry. They're doing well. I'm on the front lines, folks, each and every day. I'll tell you, they're doing pretty well. They're doing their best. God damn it, they're doing their best. But I'm yipping and yapping about Lexington and Concord, and are they just clamoring for more? Then what? Then what happened? Edge of their seats. All right, kids, and then tomorrow I'm picking up right where I left off. We're getting into the Sons of Liberty. We're breaking down the Townshend Acts. You got to act in your head if you're teaching this stuff. You got to act like it's the most interesting stuff. It's performance-based. I mean, it is. We, the teachers, we all relearn it. And then we all develop the enthusiasm to bring it to you. And then at some point we have to have the empathy to go, is this getting through to anybody? Like here I am all amped up on salutary neglect. And some of you kids are just hoping the next TikTok talk tick is going up with the likes and the subscribes. With the tap, tap, tap the screen. I got a no phone zone going on this year and I'm doing pretty well. Okay, I'm enforcing it. I'm trying to relieve them of the depression and anxiety that these phones will create. In our little time together in these classrooms, I'm saying no phone zone and so far so good. But when I say depression and anxiety, these phones are creating depression and anxiety. Probably true, but I heard a philosopher being interviewed by Theo Vaughn and he's like, you know, we're at an all-time high when it comes to depression and anxiety. And I'm like, what science do you have to back that up? Seems like there might have been a little more depression in the 1600s when you knew you wouldn't make it to your 40th birthday. You knew you were going to have warfare with the surrounding tribes. You knew that your food supply was going to run out. You'd probably have to wrestle a bear. At some point, you just would have to wrestle a bear, skin a beaver, maybe even kill your own horse and eat your own horse in front of your friends. That's an embarrassing moment. When you're like, oh, I don't have enough food. I didn't hunt properly this week. Everyone look the other way. They're like, oh, no, no. You're going to do it. Yeah, I have to kill my best friend, Gary, the horse, who's been my transportation and my source of support for so many years. But uh, I'm going to eat him. And that was a normal thing to eat your horse. And guess what? It was kind of normal to eat each other. Because when you perished, everybody looked at your body and said, grab the ranch or the blue cheese, whatever you like. I don't know. But we got to roast this motherfucker. And that's just a primary source document we analyzed, okay? That's not my words. These are the diaries we study. But the philosopher who was saying depression and anxiety are at an all-time high because of the pandemic, what a recent viewpoint. I mean, yes, there is depression and anxiety right now. And a lot of people are probably more forthcoming about it, looking for therapy, looking for meditation apps, looking to self-medicate. 
looking for wellness centers, looking for prescription drugs. A lot of people are not willing to live in that headspace, and that's good. Sure, look for help. But back then, you study history, you're like, those people must have been more depressed. Are you kidding me? These people in the 1500s, under the rule of a tyrant, monarch, zero rights, zero freedoms, zero ability to ascend in society, no status, just living that surf life. Yeah, there might have been a little more anxiety. We have all these big grandiose comments about, oh, you know, these teens today are dealing with more depression than they've ever dealt. Bullshit. These teens in 1406 in Scotland, I think they might have been worried about some things. I think they might have been a little bit anxious. As you were basically just a farm tool. All these stories about families in the 1500s, 1600s, just like trying to have 14 kids. Just trying to have 14 kids. Why? So our farm can function. It's not like daycare, kindergarten. We're doing a Halloween. Foot rubs and back rubs and lullabies at night. You had 14 kids. They immediately are farmers. That's depressing. Not getting into UC Davis, your first choice, your dream school. Nowadays, that's depressing for some, but it's a different version. I respect all versions. It's just weird when we make those statements like this is at an all time high. When you have a philosopher, a psychologist, anyone, an analyst, a pundit, a talking head on a television show or a podcast or a podcast who says things like, you know, it's at an all time high what we're saying. You don't know that. They weren't taking polls back then in the 1500s, there was no poll. And raise your hand if you're currently experiencing debilitating anxiety. Uh huh. Uh huh. No, it was everyone. It was the norm. That was the human experience. Just get through it. Just get through it. If you could get through these 35 miserable years, you did it. And guess what? We're just stardust, anyways. Wait, what do you mean we're just stardust, anyways? Yeah, don't take everything so seriously. Yes, we put a lot of purpose into our own lives. Yes, it feels like everything matters, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. But ultimately, when you step away for a moment, you're like, you know what? We're just a bunch of elements who appear out of darkness, and then we return to darkness, and all of the matter goes back into the soil and reappears in some other sphere. And I'm pretty certain of that. I think when I say we are stardust, I barely understand it, but I understand it enough to calm me. Just a bunch of atoms. What am I right now? Just a bunch of hydrogen and carbon and nitrogen and elements creating a human that got the label Josh that lives in a place called Santa Fel that speaks into a mic. And sometimes you listen and sometimes you like it and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you're indifferent and sometimes your mind wanders and you tune this out, but it's still on in the background. So thanks for clicking play. But my wife sent this to me and it was a lot to handle. But hey, let's get deep. She saw this on the World Wide Web. And I said, no way, blew my mind. So I'll read it right now. And you tell me what we think about this. What do we think about this? You have two eyes. Oh, where are you going? You have two eyes, each eye composed of 130 million photoreceptor cells. In each one of those cells, there are 100 trillion atoms. That's more than all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. However, each atom in each cell in each eye formed in the core of a star billions of years ago. And yet, here they are today, being utilized to capture the energy released from that same process, all to expand the consciousness that is you. 
The universe has an interesting sense of irony in that you are the universe experiencing itself. All you are is a thought. Folks, you're a bunch of stardust. Look at you. Oh, we got all cry together. Let's get the chills together at least. We don't have to cry, but let's get the chills together. You're stardust. Look at us. We're just matter and we matter. Oh boy. I wish I could drop this mic, but it was $111. So I think that would be a bad decision, but that's a mic drop moment to realize that. Huh? We are the universe turned inside out to look at itself and study itself in this magical experience called consciousness, which current scientists are studying to solve. Why solve it? I don't know. What do you win? If you win consciousness, like if you could really explain what it is, basically the definition is how you know you think what you think, how you know you are you. The experience, the subjective qualitative experience of just being you beyond all of the normal organs and bones and blood that make us up. What about that little thing called consciousness that makes you you? That's still indescribable. But if we start describing that, like if we solve that, what it is, oh, it's this mechanism that forms that and that's that. If we ever just solve that, then we solved it all. And I don't think we're supposed to solve it all. I think that's the game we're playing. You can't solve it all. One thing you can't solve, flow. Flow? Guys, you listening? Yeah, I said flow. And that's one of the coolest things we can attain as people. Whatever it is you experience that gets you into flow is also indescribable. Like if you're an artist and you could just paint for three hours and you're like, whoa, three hours went by? Or if you love going to the gym and you could just lift weights for a while and you're like, that was just so enjoyable. I was in that flow. It wasn't hard. Time didn't matter. Kind of an outer body experience where you're having a blissful and calm yet robotic mindset happening. It's like a really cool topic when you're watching sports. Because sometimes athletes get hot. And I learned about this from a guy named Mark Kreidler, who was a journalist. He was a sports radio host at 95.7, a part of a morning show called The Rise Guys. And when I got to 95.7, they were throwing me around the lineup and they put me in on the morning show for a week because the lead host, Whitey Gleason was his name, he was out. So I was in with The Rise Guys for a week. And the conversations at the commercial breaks were much better than whatever content we were putting on the air. Hate to say it, but it's true. A lot of the time at radio stations, the commercial breaks are lively and then the show sometimes just becomes formulaic. But Mark Kreidler was an author and he's written books about Mavericks, the famous surf spot around Half Moon Bay. He's written books about wrestling. He's written a lot of good books. He's just a phenomenal guy. Really smart, really good writer. In one of the last conversations we had, before I left the station, I was asking him, you going to write another book? And he's like, yeah, I'm actually thinking about writing a book on flow. Like when you see an athlete like Steph Curry get into that mindset where he can't miss, or when you see a batter go four for four, three home runs, or maybe it's a full week of like a batter got hot. Can he describe it? Like why did the baseball look so hittable? Or why did the hoop look bigger to Steph for the entire game, when you see an athlete who's just at another level, and then they come down. I mean, they're still great to even be on the biggest stage. But when you see a professional athlete 
playing at this ungodly level. Like just what is happening? We've all seen this happen. That flow is something athletes don't know how to describe because they don't know what's happening. Think about the greatest performances you've ever seen from boxing to track, from soccer to hoops, whatever it is. I don't know if Mark Kreidler's writing this book, but the idea was so psychological. There's a psychological element to everything we do. We limit ourselves. A lot of the time, the biggest defense is played from within. Like, who limits us? We do. I told my buddy the other day, you know, one of my friends, I feel like I have a lot of friends who run. Is that also what happens? You get into history and you just start running later in life. But he's like, yeah, I'm training for a 50 mile. We're going, I'm training for a 100,000 mile. We're running over to Philadelphia and then we're running home. I'm like, what the, what the fuck? It just sounds so boring, right? I'm training for this blank K and I, I don't know the math on K. I'm training for this 12K right now where we're raising money for lidocaine awareness week, which is uh, one of the great numbing agents. Um, lidocaine aware? What are you doing? I'm doing a 25K where we're hoping to raise funds for the Libertarian Green Tea Party. We're hoping to raise funds to campaign against oppression. And I'm running a... You're right. Who cares that you're running? How does that connect to the cause? All these people think they're doing it for the cause. No, you're doing it to get out of the house and try to stay in shape. But what the hell was I talking about? Oh, yeah. My buddy's telling me about the K he's doing. He's like, yeah, it's a 6K, 10K. And I'm like, I couldn't do that. That's just my reaction. Whenever someone tells me about their big running achievement, I just say, I couldn't do that. I leave my home and I run two miles and I run home and that's fine. That's all I got in me. Takes about 20 minutes and I'm good for the rest of the day. And my friend was like, yeah, you could. He didn't want to hear the self-deprecation. He's like, Rosenberg, you could. But you like to say, I couldn't do that to things. And shit, he was right. I probably could do. 100,000 miles to Philadelphia. I could, I could probably run to Canada. All right, now let's have a self-inflated moment. I probably could be a professional boxer. Could you imagine at this age, got my first fight, I would get knocked unconscious in the first few seconds. If you put me in the ring with a professional boxer right now, oh, what about if you gave me one carry in the NFL? Immediate Achilles, right? Actually, forget Achilles, all bones broken. If I was in the NFL for one carry up the middle, shattered femur, shattered collarbone, concussed, doctor said he will never walk again. Just start the documentary now. Will he ever walk again? And this is where you, you go, no, you could, you could get a couple yards, Josh. You're your own defense. You're limiting yourself, Josh. You could get a couple yards against the Ravens, D. Oh, man, thanks. Appreciate that. No, I couldn't. But what's flow? What is it? When was the last time you experienced flow? How do you get to flow? Wouldn't that be great if we knew? We don't know how to get to flow. You could put yourself in a position, like if you go on a hike and you put your phone away, you focus on your breathing or the sound of the birds, or you focus on the clouds. You could try to get to flow on a hike, or you could buy a bunch of art supplies and put up a canvas. You could wear a smock. Start mixing paints. Grow a fro like Bob Ross. Get a dark room. Start inhaling too many chemicals. See what happens. I don't know. How do you get to flow if you're an athlete? 
practice, practice, train, practice, practice, train. But I guarantee the nights that Steph goes three for 18 from the floor, it was the same exact approach, right? The same exact physical mental approach. So he doesn't know what creates that flow. When a pitcher throws a no-hitter, did they do anything differently on the mound? No, they're lying if they said yes. It's just everything can fall into place. And I give you the sports reference because Mark Kreidler was a sports radio host, but what other facets of life can you attain flow? Like I've seen my wife from time to time in the garden and she just loses track of everything and that's her happy place. But it's not always like that. Sometimes she's probably getting frustrated that the tomatoes aren't growing. Sometimes she's probably like, ah, the hose is tangled. You know, gardening, it sounds totally blissful, but no. If the cucumber tastes bitter and you're like, why the fuck? Or if a cat keeps walking in your soil, you're like, fucking crits. It could be stressful. Any of these fun activities can be stressful, but when you get to flow, oh, baby, what's happening? I don't know. You don't know, but we're stardust. Do Buddhist monks get to flow daily? Because they've committed to a life of, oh, transcendental say om breathing and breathing and breathing in your monastery don't take that meth we all remember that story too many buddhist monks were taking meth in thailand and they got caught and had to detox but i don't want to talk about that i just want to talk about the beauty of buddhism here's what i don't understand this is a legitimate uninformed take on buddhism but if you study history buddhists have been persecuted in so many regions of the world so many times and i don't get it i don't get it What's bothering you about the Buddhists? Is it that they're trying to be peaceful and mindful? I mean, I guess you could take that logic and apply it to any religion that's been persecuted or any group of people that's been oppressed. But Buddhists? Who's anti-Buddhist? Who's upset with Buddhism? If you actually read about Buddhism, and I've read a little bit, it's beautiful. It's calming. It relaxes me to read about Siddhartha and read about the truths, the noble truths and the Dharma and Bodhisattva and Peter Coyote. Okay, I haven't read I haven't read that much, but what I've read is just like so nice. I don't even see it as a religion. I don't see these people as religious. What am I missing? It's just a philosophy. It's kind of a nice way to look at life and try to fit into what could be a struggle. I mean, life is a struggle, right? 50% of our lives, we're probably worried about something, maybe way more than 50, right? We're stressed about something we don't even know sometimes. Why am I waking up stressed? Why does my brain, my monkey brain, go back into worry mode immediately when nothing's wrong in this moment? Why, right? That's tough. And Buddhism is like trying to be the antidote. Buddhism is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. What if, what, and hear me out, that's Buddhism. Just hear me out before you just start worship, blind worship of that God or that God. Or before you race to abuse that substance or oppress that group of people. Now, hear me out, hear me out. What if you just breathe in and out and try to understand the impermanence of everything and how to be non-reactive to the intense stimulations that the world throws at you and to go with the flow of the current and learn to dance in the rain instead of run from the rain? Hear me out. What if we try that? Like, what if, here's my what if. What if the whole world was Buddhist? Like, that's all we were. That's all anyone was ever taught. I think we'd be better. I do. I, I hereby declare, I think everything would be better. What if we didn't even teach any history starting now? 
Like moving forward, I know I'm playing devil's advocate big time on my career, but what if we just stopped teaching everyone about all of history? We're still teaching literacy skills. All right, what is school now without history? Science, math, sure. PE, uh, language, sure. You got all that. And then just shove Buddhism down the throats of everyone on planet Earth starting now. You can't tell me. We would remain in this vicious cycle of conflict. You can't tell me that. Read a Buddhism book and get back to me. Who the hell has attempted to kill off Buddhists? What are you doing? What are you doing? Look at yourself. It's a hot rant. All right? Or maybe the room I'm in is hot. I got to pump the AC. Either that was a hot rant or this is a hot room. And I'm wearing wool socks that I bought on Amazon because that's what I do. I got the app, folks. I didn't want the app, but I got the Amazon Prime app. And I'm scrolling for scented candles for three hours. I'm buying facial soaps. I'm buying sponges. I bought toilet paper on Amazon. It's sick. It's bad. It's bad. I'm the opposite of the settlers that came over in the 1600s. The English settlers who came over with nothing and had to create everything. The roots of America, the colonists who set this up, who set this up, these towns, these settlements who started to pave the roads and create the commerce and the rules and the laws in this thing called America. And they DIY'd the shit out of this country. They do it yourself did. I ain't DIYing anything. I'm just tapping the app uh, toilet paper. It'll be here September 16th. Vitamin B. It'll be here September 17th. Get me away from Amazon prime. I'm getting dumber. All we can do is tap devices and purchase things that are prepackaged for us. That we're told that we enjoy. Hey, you, you see this new app? It tells me when to blink. You mean you're not blinking on your own anymore? No, no, no. It's called Blink. You can write comments on other people's blinking patterns. It gives you a little buzz right in your pocket when you're supposed to blink. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on Blink. I love that app. And then you could like see when other people are blinking and kind of connect in a community of blinkers. Yeah, it's sweet. We can't do shit anymore. We have no skills. We don't. There's a duality to what's happening right now. I know the Mike Judge movie, Idiocracy, I think the point is we're getting dumber. We're also getting so much smarter, right? With AI and all the tech innovation and modern medicine that's helping us live longer lives and whatever I guess we're doing in the world of space exploration. I, I can give you all that. We're getting smarter. But God, we're getting so dumb. We don't have skills. No one knows how to sew anymore. You don't know how to sew. If you're listening right now, you don't you, you don't even know how to sew. You can make a smoothie and you get all excited, but everyone can make a smoothie. You got a slow cooker and you tell everybody at work what you put in your slow cooker and everyone goes, did you hear Lori's putting chicken adobo in her? No one gives a shit, Lori. We just have to pretend that we care. We're all doing it. You got a sourdough starter? Oh, Whoa, Mr. D.I. No, you're not. None of us have skills. All right. None of us are arriving on the shores of Jamestown, chopping down a tree, building our own hut, calling it our new neighborhood, and then eating a horse because dinner didn't arrive. You ate a horse. You would. I would. We all would. But now what do we do? We tap the app. We tap Amazon Prime because we're all out. We're all out of things that we never should have had in the first place. We'll scream to our spouses. I think we're low on kombucha. I think we're low on kombucha this week. Let's get booched. Organic lavender, traces of alcohol. We're low on our apple cider vinegar for our probiotic gut drink. 
this week. We, we need it? Yeah, because we read an article that talks about our gut. We're all talking about our guts now. In 10 years, we're going to read an article that said you shouldn't have focused so much on your gut. It should have been your pancreas this whole time. It should have been your fatty necrosis this whole time. should have been your septum. You should have focused on it. You should have focused on avoiding athlete's foot this whole time, but you focused on your gut from 2019 to 2032, and you didn't need to. Turns out the gut's fine. The gut's just going to be fine. What are we doing? Oh, boy. (laughs) I looked up at my own ceiling and realized that I'm recording. What are we doing? I'll tell you what I'm recording. Episode 219, where I think for the fourth or fifth or maybe even sixth straight week, I'm still reading the same book, the Ricky Henderson book by Howard Bryant. And it continually, that's how long Ricky played, that my opinions about him as a man are going up and down. Now, keep in mind, in my classroom, I've decorated it with so much Ricky memorabilia. People think I'm like a big Oakland A's fanatic. Yeah, I liked the A's, but I'm more of a Ricky fan. And this book has me questioning, wait, am I a Ricky fan? Like, there'll be a chapter on how wonderful he was, obviously a freakishly gifted athlete. And then there's a chapter on, like, ooh, he did that? Like, just, oh, shit, was he a criminal? No, was he a criminal teammate? Was he, oh, he was exonerated from that little crime? Okay. Oh, he never committed to her? He said that? Oh, And then they tell a story about he went four for four against the Dodgers and drove in the game-winning RBI single in the ninth. And you're like, I'm back on board, Ricky. I'm back on board. And there's so many Ricky stories. And the author goes so deep into every Ricky story, interviewing like 20 people for every Ricky story. It's almost like too much, right? It's like Beatles fans. Haven't you had enough? How many documentaries do you have to watch before you're like, you know, I liked the music of this band. To be a fanatic of something, it's kind of, or a nerd, I guess, of something, it's exhausting. Like, yes, I'm a Ricky fan, but this book, I think I'm ready to finish it. After six weeks, he's still playing. He's like 41 years old. He's on the Mariners. He went deep. And I have to get back to this book, but there is a point. And that is that your reputation can change throughout your career. You can really reinvent yourself. You don't have to be stuck kind of nice i mean it's also scary in a way like if you were loved at some phase of life and you're like oh shit people hate me now that could change too that's also buddhist don't yearn for the constant love of others and don't worry if you feel hated by others and don't worry it'll be fine impermanent it's temporary let it flow through you let it flow through you so yeah there was a time where ricky was labeled greedy doesn't care about the game he's hot dogging it look at him not a great teammate And then he keeps playing and playing and playing. And people are like, he's a good teammate and he loves the game so much he can't retire and he's still working hard and he's starting to mentor young players and all these writers and reporters who just ripped him apart and shredded him because they thought he was such a selfish player who didn't respect the game. Now he's like the most respectable player in the game because he played long enough and he outlasted all of his peers. He entered the league in the 70s and he was playing all the way up until I was like 21 years old. Holy shit. That's life. Can I just say that? The highs and the lows, it's all captured in a baseball book. But in the end, I think, yeah, I think it's a microcosm of life. Ups, downs, moments of great respect and adulation, moments of being down in the dumps and doubted. 
Then all of it is smushed into one big ball of mixed Play-Doh called life. It's true. How long does your Play-Doh last? Hey, parents of young kids, Play-Doh, what does it last? 12 hours? Who left the lid off? Who didn't put the lid on the orange? Who mixed the pink with the blue and the... Now it's just brownish after two days. You can't buy Play-Doh and get excited about it. Play-Doh's like something that's always close to garbage. And if kids eat it, it's fine. All right, enough with this. Don't eat the Play-Doh. If you're telling your toddler not to eat the Play-Doh, what are you scared of? They can eat the Play-Doh, obviously. They can eat all this shit. They can probably eat the Legos. We get so worried. Oh, don't put it in your mouth. They could eat it. I know you don't want them to choke, but most of this stuff, just let them eat it. All right, I think that's how I'll end it. Let them eat it. All right, all right, all right. We're going to bounce. We're done here. It's been real. Let's try to enter that flow. Let's try to capture this moment because this is the best part. You thought the beginning was the best part? No, this is the best part because you're still breathing. You're alive. You're wiser now. We're all wiser as we grow. That's the gift, right? Wisdom. That's the gift. We're wiser. And I guess we're a little bit artsier too. It's episode 219. It's in the book, so I'll talk to you soon. You ain't artsier than me. Cause you live in low speedless, bitch. You ain't Jesus. You ain't artsier than me. I got a colorful vocab. Watch the low jazz.